Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast, brought to you by discipleship.org. This is your host, Dave Stovall, and I want to say we are officially kicking off the track sessions from this year's most recent forum. We had a great time at the forum this year up in Indianapolis, and this first episode is actually Global Discipleship Initiative's second track session, because their first track session came to me with some messed up audio, it was unusable, which sometimes happens, and that really highlights the fact that you just can't replace the in-person forum. So if you missed this year, make sure to keep an eye on discipleship.org for when we're going to do the next one, so you can make plans not to miss anything. Greg and Dave are talking to us today about the microgroup and how it embodies Jesus' intentional and relational approach to discipleship. All right, everyone, enjoy the episode. Okay, uh, let me just give you kind of a broad introduction to what our whole seminar series is about. You have an outline, and you can turn to page four in this outline because that's where we are in our second session uh, today. But as you know, we're focused very clearly on the issue of a microgroup as a context in which disciples are made. So microgroup is three or four people who covenant together around the truth of God's word, um, to share their lives together in honesty and trust and openness with each other. But in the process, as they're in those groups together, they learn how to do this for others as well. And so that's our very simple focus. GDI is, is thinks that that is really a context when you see these groups multiply within the context of a church and kind of revolutionize from within uh, what God can do that uh, you can see a transformation of a culture of your church over a three- to five-year period. And that, that takes time, uh, takes patience, which most of us don't have, and uh, to see that grow and develop because we want to have quick fixes to our problems, right? But uh, there's really not a quick fix uh, that is out there. So we're looking at this as a longer-term solution uh, to transformation of, of church life. And so in that initial setting, uh, initial session, we uh, took a look at uh, how replicating microgroups are shaping culture. And so we had a couple of stories last night of churches that are in the process of or have gone through transformation in their church settings. And uh, today our topic is how microgroups embody Jesus' intentional relational, relational approach. And so our, our big question that we are attempting to answer here is, how? We know what the Great Commission is, but how do you implement that? How do you make it happen? How do you make it a reality on the ground in the church? And so I'm going to ask uh, Dave Shanuel, who is our national director here for the U.S., I know, only recently on board within this last year and doing a fabulous job in the Kansas City area, the Midwest, and we have visions for throughout the country as to where we go. And Dave is going to share some of his own personal journey to start with here as to why the microgroup was such an impactful thing for you and how you came to discover it and what your practice has been. And we'll lead into our topic this morning. And thank you, Greg. And thank you. I'm, in, I'm indebted to, to this man. He invest, he's invested 40 plus years in disciple making and laying this foundation that we have the privilege to build upon. So thank you. A little housekeeping real quick. Uh, and you sat down. Uh, you saw this registration card. If you will please fill that out, Cowboy. Uh, we'll be collecting them here in a little while. It is his name. 
It's on his birth certificate. So it is a so he'll be collecting them and then at the close of this session we'll draw one for one of our people. Okay. On this card, in fact you pull it out real quick. Some of you were here last night, so it'll be a little bit of a reminder for you. Uh, but on the card, there's two things in particular I want you to notice. Um, the third little check mark there down, I would like more information regarding GDI cohort training. This is a two-year uh, process. We will meet with you for two hours once a month for 19 sessions to just dig deep into assessing the need, the biblical need. But at the end of this process, we will have helped you work toward developing a, a multi-year plan in transitioning your church to a disciple-making culture. However, point number two on your card, I am interested in participating in a coaching microgroup. You will need to have um, up to two microgroups behind you before you get into this cohort because it's almost like a master's level cohort. So we want you to have some experience in the microgroup. So this coaching microgroup, our aim is to put you in a setting, microgroup setting via Zoom, when we give you exposure to the elements of a microgroup, when we work, help you get started with a microgroup, the invitation process, that you started with facilitating a microgroup. And our job there is to get you launched successfully. When you're in a microgroup, in a coaching microgroup, we don't leave you alone when we're done. And this is usually 8, 10, 12 weeks that we will meet with you. We will assign a coach to you if you're facilitating a group, stay in touch with you. You will also be a part of one of our regional quarterly microgroup leaders meetings where you'll get in conversations once a quarter with other microgroup leaders in your 8, 10 state region. One of the distinctives that we are investing ourselves in as GDI is that we will come alongside of you. You don't have to take this journey alone. And we are committed to that task. All right? Any questions on the registration card? Come on in, Jim. Please fill that out. Did everybody receive the notes for the session? Anybody need to raise your hand? Cabo, I'll get you. You need a pen. What I want you to do, I'm going to share for about 10, 15 minutes this morning. And as I'm sharing, if a question comes to mind. 10, 10 minutes. Oh, 10 minutes. Even <laughs> short. And I my clock hadn't started. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, write your question down if you have it, if we're at a point where you just can't interrupt me, and we want to address your questions. Sound good? good. All right. As Greg uh, mentioned, I am Dave Shanuel. Um, had the privilege of. Actually, I bugged Greg so much starting back in, eight, in 2018 that he just got tired of me bugging him, so he said, I need you to come on as a U.S. National Director. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a reason for me bugging him down. And uh, I, uh, I grew up in Belleville, uh, Illinois, about 200 miles southwest of here. Uh, I grew up in a religious home. But by the grace of God, uh, 
I was saved from sin and a religious ritual, if you will, when I was 20 years old. Three years later, started full-time ministry, and to be honest with you, I had no idea what I was getting into. I just knew that's what God wanted for my life. Around that same point in time, I met a lovely lady named Darla from Southern Illinois. We celebrate our 42nd wedding anniversary this June, and um, that we celebrate. That celebration is more due to her than me. <laughs> special, special woman. We now reside in Kansas City, Missouri. We've been there since uh, 1990, where I have served uh, in two churches. It was in my second church in Kansas City, where I left a church of 600. We watched that church grow 140% during my 11 years there. And our omnipotent, awesome God called me from that church to a church that was considering closing their doors. They had strategically declined to 20 in attendance. They sat on 10 acres. How many of y'all are familiar with 435? I mean, uh, Kansas City. Kansas City. Well, the loop around Kansas City is 435. Just like the loop around Indianapolis is, what, 465? Is that right? And so... And yet, they were ready to close their doors. So we, we went by, I went by vocational until they could begin forward, my salary. We served there for over 11 years. We watched that church grow to over 200. It was in my eighth year at that church that I felt that my leadership, both staff leadership, lay leadership, had hit the ceiling. And to be honest with you, I didn't know how to take them beyond that. And the only thing that kept coming to mind, how can my leaders begin to reproduce themselves and surround themselves with leaders? So I'm not the only one creating that leadership atmosphere and culture. So I, I prayed. For months I prayed. I began reading. And to this day, I don't recall where I came across Transforming Discipleship. But I read this book. That was 15 years ago this year. Four months ago, I launched my 15th microgroup. It has changed my life. And I've watched this process change the lives of, of many men and women. In a moment, I'm going to talk about the components, the key components of, of, of a microgroup. But before I do, I'm going to take you back six years, 2017, in a church running approximately 100, started one microgroup. The next year, three microgroups. And out of that small church, God has used that one microgroup six years ago. We now have nearing 80 microgroups in that four-state area. 400-plus believers meeting weekly, making and multiplying disciples. You heard Dr. Ogden say, 
Be patient. But that's the power of the multiplication of a model that Jesus gave us when he stood on that hill outside of Galilee and he said what? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and do what? Make disciples. For a number of years, I've been doing uh, pulpit supply. And I kid you not, there's only been two churches in a four-year period that when I ask them what the Great Commission is, they can't. They can't tell me. And they'll say, oh, it's to baptize. It's to, to go. It's to preach. Only in two churches, three individuals said to make disciples. Just as Greg Craig, uh, we've got to get back to the instructions of Christ. Let's talk about the uh, key. Uh, you got it? Key ingredients. <clears throat> a microgroup. We, we call it a container of the elements of accelerated spiritual growth. We often refer to the formula context, the container, is the microgroup. Plus, proper content. Our content is not discipleship essentials. Or, and I, I'll go through this. This is kind of a roadmap. But the content is what? It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And for 15 years, I've seen it over and over again. Not only personally, but in the lives of hundreds of others. That accelerated spiritual. Let me give you an example. Two examples. One gentleman in my current microgroup, 41 years old. He was part of my church uh, at the church out on 435 that I was telling you about. He and his wife came to know Christ in the last year I was there. Step aside, you know, you just kind of lose contact. You leave church. He called me a year and a half ago. Hadn't talked to him in eight years. He said, Pastor Dave, I want you to know Tammy died. His wife, 37 years old, died of pancreatic cancer. He was devastated. Well, I had a microgroup going on. I took two of my microgroup members with me to the visitation. Matt and his wife had been unchurched for about five years, unfortunately. They weren't. Cycling did not continue, unfortunately. At that visitation, get this, there were over 20 18 to 24-year-olds who were there who referred to Tammy, who was now laying in the casket, and Matt as their adopted parents. And I said to Strad, and I said to Stephen, we have got to get this guy discipled. He's in my current microgroup now. In the four months that we've met, Matt has been with me to visit in the hospital. A month ago, he went with me and sat down with a family who just lost a loved one. Matt could not have done that six months ago. The grief was too much to bear. He not only ministered to this family, he spoke at the funeral. That is 
the power of gathering with a few at a time and investing life with it. This is why we refer to it as a microgroup is a container for the elements of accelerated growth. I got so many other examples. Let me go on. One person invites two to three others. I want you to write down invites. Oh, the power of a personal invitation. Isn't that the way Jesus modeled it for us? Did he not? By name. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. We'll come back to that. In a moment, Greg Ogden will address the critical importance of why no less than three, no more than four. There is a strategic purpose for no less than three, no more than four. These groups are gender specific, men with men, women with women. So let me ask you, why is it important? Why is this a a critical component? Why is gender specific important? You're not going to get real if uh, you're, you're having to worry about covering your butt. <laughs> you that, that blunt Can I quote you on that? <laughs> Put that in my next book. I like that. I like that. Michelle, right? I was in a coaching microgroup with a chaplain I was telling you about, from Kentucky, and I was telling you about Chaplain Elizabeth Town. He used the term, he, he just brought to mind the other day, he said spring butt. How many knows what a spring butt is? It's your military. See? <laughs> okay, never mind. So you just made me think about that. What was the, what was the point? Why is gender specific? Why is that important? Same thing. Same, Same thing. thing. Real. Yeah. Anybody else? Deep spiritual connection can be ref- uh, confused as romantic connection. Say that again. A deep spiritual connection between people across genders could be confused as a romantic connection. Okay. Excuse the interest. Yeah. So what are you sort of saying? Yeah. They're all on the same page, don't you? Cowboy? Females will open up to females, or males will open up to males. And they don't open up quite the same. Mm-hmm. Personally, for 15 Cindy? Also, boundaries. Boundaries? Yep. boundaries? Okay, yeah. And you're sharing really intimate things. After 15 years, personally, for me, it's accountability. I need men speaking into me and holding me accountable. So, obviously, reason why. The fifth component of a microgroup has to do with duration. Once a week for 90 minutes for at least one year. The microgroup map, if you will, is discipleship essentials. <clears throat> Made up of 25 lessons. And I want you to write as much of this statement down as you can. All right? It, it came across the, I'm still learning, okay? We've not arrived. I'm still learning. Um, this is a statement I'm going to be working and developing. Each lesson could take two weeks or more to process and experience. Let me say that again. Each lesson could take two weeks or more to process and experience. You see, the disciple-making process, it is not a class. It is not a program. It's doing life. 
the three men that I meet with each week, we do life together. I want you to write this down. Never, everybody write it down. Never do ministry alone. From this day forward, I challenge you, never do ministry alone. Always take someone with you. Again, as Greg prayed, giving us back to how Jesus modeled it for us. A sixth component is we make a covenant to reproduce. We make a covenant to reproduce. Each person seeks to start their own group upon completion. The first four years of our Midwest disciple-making movement, we had 90% reproduction rate. That's a metric we need to follow. We've got to put attendance aside, giving aside. We need to use a new metric in our U.S. churches, and that is our reproduction rate. We have now about 75 80%. Again, we're still learning, but that is an important metric. Now, during session three after lunch, we will unpack the why, the what of a covenant. But take note, for the sake of this current session, we covenant to reproduce. Number seven, next component, curriculum-based. During session four, we're going to dig down deeper into the topic of curriculum. But let me just share at this point, from personal experience, a curriculum is critical because it establishes a baseline for one, expectancy, two, maturity. Expectancy, maturity. To be honest with you, 15 years ago, what drew me to this particular disciple-making roadmap is threefold. It's biblical, it's simple, and it's transferable. Transferable. And after 15 years, I can say with experiential confidence, it works. One more component, meet in a safe place. Location, location, location. If this process were a mere program, I'm reading my notes now so I don't go any further down the road of being over. (laughs) If this process were a mere program, we could meet anywhere, right? But making disciples is relational and transformational, far more than just mere informational. And in the 15 years of using microgroups as my avenue for making reproducing disciples, I have chosen never to meet in a restaurant or a coffee shop. Why? Distractions. Distractions? Great. No privacy. What's that? No privacy. No privacy? Okay. I've always chosen to... Yeah. I was just going to say, yeah, the ability to pray together, the ability for a guy to feel safe to break down if he needs to. Vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Good point. Uh, I've always met in homes, sometimes in an office, we can shut the door. Why? Again, as you said, it limits the distractions, but it also raises confidentiality to a premium. Don't forget that. We're going to be taking a whole lot more time talking about microgroups throughout each session today. Um, Over the last 10 minutes or so, 15 maybe, 
uh, I've referenced microgroups as relational disciple-making. Uh, Greg's going to come and dig into that a little bit more. And as he's coming, any immediate questions from what I should? Guys have had some good questions thus far. So. Yes, sir. Is part of the idea of using a home, too, that it kind of grows in relation to another component? Like when you see somebody's house, where they live. And That's a great point. Right? Right. And you yeah. tend to be a little bit more comfortable, mm-hmm. won't you? Yeah, great point. Yeah. Excellent. Good. I'm going to add that to my notes. Yeah, that's right. All right. Thank you, Dave. Good job, guys. Um, give Dave a hand. He did a great job, I think. No? Appreciate him a little bit. Okay. Um, as I lead into kind of some biblical foundations for uh, int- intentional relational disciple making, which we want to talk about, let me just give you a little bit of my own personal journey and story quickly here in terms of why I think this is such an important uh, way to go about making disciples. I came to faith in Christ as a young seventh grader, 12 years old, went off to a winter camp in the midst of a, some emotional trauma as a kid uh, with a lot of fear in my life, heard the message of the gospel that weekend um, and responded to the good news of the God's love for me in my life and felt this overwhelming crash of God into me and lifting some of these fears that I was carrying around. Uh, the speaker of that morning, for whatever reason, I remember this verse, uh, said, quoting Jesus out of Matthew 11, verse 28, come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that was the invitation to come to Jesus for me. Transforming weekend, uh, I was not a much of a churchgoer. My family was were churchgoers, but not Christ-centered, let's put it that way. And so uh, they said to me, I said, do any of, you, any of you become Christians this weekend? Read your Bible. Thanks a lot. Uh, never read my Bible in my life and didn't know where to start or wherever. So I, I probably didn't even know what to expect after that. Uh, but what I got in retrospect was absolute silence. Zero follow-up. I filled out a decision card, handed it in to my camp counselor. Where that card ended up, who knows? Uh, obviously, they had no plan at all to follow up on helping me grow in my faith. And so I just drifted for the next number of years until I had a turning point between my junior and senior years of high school. I was on a trip around the United States with 70 other high schoolers for six weeks. Lo and behold, there was a subset of Christians as a part of this secular uh, tour that were meeting very regularly. They happened to be a part of the church that I was sort of connected to. And uh, they folded me into that group. I got involved in the high school youth group as I came back. And involved in a loving, caring community. Kids my age that were taking faith seriously, and I needed their message because their message was, Greg, we are so glad that you are here, a part of us. And I started to flourish in terms of my own growth, and I started moving out of this very shy, inwardly focused guy to one who was more outwardly focused and uh, moved into leadership roles very quickly. Then as I was going into my sophomore year of high school, I got a phone call that I say was going to change my life. Um, Don Matheson was on the other end of the phone. He was a seminary student leading our junior high ministry. We had started an outreach program in the church, and he needed some help. 130 uh, junior high kids showing up every Wednesday night at the church. These balls of energy, and he needs some college kids to come in and help him out. And I was there. Great. How would you like to be a part of the team working in our junior high ministry? Yes. Great. Love to. Showed up on Wednesday nights. Got seventh grade boys. Uh, in seventh grade, I came, came in Christ. Nobody followed up on me. And so I had a chance to kind of, I guess, close the loop a little bit. 
And uh, Don would always challenge us, don't just come on Wednesday night and meet with the kids here, go out and meet with them individually. Got in my red VW bug and picked them up after school and we'd go do stuff together. And then Don would call up and say, hey, let's get together on one-on-one, play some tennis and things like that. And then invariably he would open up his Philip's version of the New Testament to me and share with me some scripture that was speaking to his life. He wouldn't just read a passage of scripture to me. He would say, this is how it is speaking to my own heart. And sometimes it was, you know, following Jesus is not the easiest thing to do. I've got to take a look at things in my life that are not in order. And scripture points those things out. And so he brought me into his life, into his heart. And as I like to say, as we sat together on that bench next to the tennis court, uh, there was a transaction that took place. And that was, I like what I see in Don's life. And if Don wants to follow Jesus, so do I. And that that's began an early imprint in me. And that is, if you're going to have an influence on people, you've got to walk alongside them over a period of time. And uh, so that... And then I'll do a little fast forward here. So I picked up, I guess, the model of one-to-one discipling in that, that setting. Uh, I think there's organizations that featured that. I thought, well, that's what discipling is. It's a one-to-one relationship. That was always my paradigm. So I tried that for a number of years. I, I was able to establish the reality of the modern-day uh, definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Um, because I was not seeing the results of multiplication. I was not seeing me be able to invest in others who then would invest in others. And I didn't know why. You know, I kept trying to refine the model and doing things better and getting better materials and things like that. Uh, and then I had uh, what I would call two epiphanies in fairly short order and that then would transform my understanding of how to go about making disciples, all from an experiential perspective. First one happened to do with uh, uh, where the curriculum, Discipleship Essentials, came from, uh, at least initially. I was out jogging around a track one afternoon. This is the mid-1980s, believe it or not. And uh, I don't think I was intentionally thinking how frustrated I was about disciple-making. But uh, all of a sudden, I, I said, I felt like this arrow came shooting through me from the sky, that God was, whew. and instantaneously, I had the format of what discipleship essentials should look like, the four parts that are in it with the core truth, memory verse, inductive Bible study, reading. It was all there in front of me. Uh, and it was this with this sense of call that you've, you've got to put together something that can be helpful, at least to me initially, uh, in terms of me discipling, to pull some resources together to what to use that kind of give the picture I remember going back to my wife who's sitting back there and we were just about ready to go on vacation. I said, you know, you've got to give me the mornings. I've got to get started on this project. Uh, let me have eight in the morning to noon and then I'm yours with our daughter after that. And uh, that's where things began. Well, that evolved over many years into a, the curriculum. And then the second thing had to do with uh, completing my doctor minister degree at Fuller Seminary. And one of the things you can do is have a ministry project to complete it. So I had written this rudimentary version of a discipleship material. And so we thought, well, uh, I'll, I'll test it out. And so let's do a one-on-one relationship with this content. Let's do a small group, a group of 10. And then my mentor in this process said, why, why don't you try a group of three? And a young man by the name of Eric had approached me. He was just two years out of college and asked me if I would mentor him. 
Uh, I'm not even sure what I knew what that meant. Uh, Ralph has a story about that as well. And, uh, and then I said, well, Eric, how about if you're one of my guinea pigs uh, with this discipleship material? And we'll add a third. Uh, so we invited Carl into the relationship. And we started meeting at noontime. I worked up to all the material. We, meet at, we met at a restaurant <laughs> and, uh, because they were both working and we needed that space. And I was just so taken by the change in dynamics from the one-to-one relationship to the threes and fours that they would become. The first thing I noticed was energy. The, the dynamics of the interchange, the conversation, the sharing of our life uh, together. One-on-one is back and forth. You know, group of three or four, it's interchange. Second thing I noticed was my role in the relationship. As a pastor uh, in that relationship, in a one-to-one relationship, I'm the teacher, right? I'm supposed to be the fountain of all wisdom. All the pressure is on me to keep the, the relationship going because the person I'm discipling is looking to me. So it creates a hierarchy, a dependency model relationship that makes it very difficult for to move from pastor to parishioner to carry it on in that one-to-one model because of the hierarchical relationship. In the group of three or four, I'm a participant. Early on, they might start looking to me for to be the Bible answer man, right? Uh, but I resist that role. <laughs> I said, we can figure this out together. I don't have to be uh, your answer to every question. And just to be a part of that was like, I can be on this journey with you. Uh, I, I can see some you know, acknowledgement over there in terms of people have had the same same experience, and uh, I have not deviated from that focus you know since in terms of the way to go about it. Written materials learned a lot over over the years certainly in terms of what goes on into that relationship. So that's some of my own personal journey to get us to to where we are. So let me ask you to turn uh, to Luke chapter six, and uh, we'll take a look briefly here at Jesus model. Uh, of ministry. So Luke 6, uh, verses 12 and 13. We don't know how long Jesus has been about his public ministry at this point. Let's say six months, perhaps. We know that Jesus has already gathered up an entourage of disciples. Luke 5, we have Peter, James, and John who are invited to come follow me. Uh, Matthew's already been called as a tax collector. But we know at this point he's got a larger group of disciples than the 12. It's pretty clear from this text that this is taking place. And Luke is telling us uh, in this setting that this something very important is happening now. Because it says that Jesus spent all night in prayer and then the next day he called his disciples to him. And from that group chose 12 to be his apostles. So that's sort of that signal. So Luke 12 Six twelve. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountaintop to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. When you read scripture, are there times when you want to kind of interject yourself into the text, into the moment? And wouldn't it have been wonderful to be able to eavesdrop on Jesus at certain moments? Uh, this is one of those moments that I think, What was Jesus praying about? What was he talking to the Father about, knowing what was going to happen the next day? That this was an important turning point in his ministry of selecting that inner circle that was going to be surrounding him for the rest of his ministry for the purpose of, we know, turning his ministry over to them. 
getting them ready uh, for that. So what do you think? If you were to have listened in on Jesus' prayer with the Father, what do you suppose may have been on Jesus' heart? Which of the 120 should I pick on this team? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it could have been that 120, it could have been 70, whatever the number is. But Okay, so yeah, is, he, is Jesus still trying to figure it out? Um, the way I kind of look at that is, okay, he's got a list of 15. i got to get rid of three. Uh, which three do I take off this list, right? Um, or maybe he's even starting to ponder who it is and thinking, okay, where are we Peter? Three years? Okay. Um, you know, that guy is just talking all the time. <laughs> so, um, okay. Well, so it could be that he was still working on that in terms of who it was. What else do you suppose might have been on Jesus' heart that night? Yeah. In the wisdom to identify or discern who Okay, wisdom is not about discernment. So again, the issue of who who were the right. And I, I think that's part of that prayer time. As we talk about how these groups are initiated, the micro groups, uh, first step, we go back to every time, <laughs> is pray. Ask God to put on your heart who it is that he is leading you to. Uh, and pray over time until you have a settled conviction of terms of the person's um, that you are, are going after. And we can tell you lots of stories about that, but when you approach somebody, and Dave is going to model a little bit the personal invitation here in a second, we, what we want to be able to say to the person is, I've been praying about this, and God just seems to be drawing me to you. And, uh, and as you make that invitation, and look at somebody in the eye and say, come join me on this journey. Uh, I really want to take this journey with you. Yeah, so that kind of thing. Okay. What else? I can imagine him praying for God's, the Father's confirmation on their side, right? So, oh, okay. Um, That's so good. I'm praying over it, so God's leading me to that person, but I'm going I'm to trust that confirmation comes in terms of the way they respond. I don't know if that works with Jesus' way, but I imagine. <laughs> yeah. And the truth, we're praying about that in terms that there, there would be a confirmation. But yeah, you know, it's, uh, um, I don't know how you know Judas responded on that standpoint, but. Uh, but that's true. You know, there would be receptivity in their hearts to the to the call and invitation. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, the context right before that is, I think, shows too that Jesus' heartbrokenness because uh, being in the synagogue, they you know condemned him for healing on the Sabbath. Yeah. And uh, the way of transitioning from the letter of the law to the spirit of the law, and how he was going to to show that uh, to this community. I mean, this is the, these are the Jewish people. He's right. talking, he's picking Jewish believers uh, to be his apostles. So how he is to transition and continue to develop the kingdom uh, is what he came to preach. Uh, and how to show that through the lives of people. Okay, absolutely. So my guess is that Jesus is already praying for the disciples. He knows most likely who it is that he is going to be picking. And perhaps he's praying about Peter, uh, that he would be the rock. You know, he changed his name right early on, right? To, from Simon to, you know, Cephas, so the rock. Uh, Peter, which is you know, Greek for rock. Uh, was Peter a rock at the time that he, he called him? Not at all. Uh, long way to go. This is this is a project, Lord. I've got a here, and so um, yeah, that kind of thing. Yes, perhaps he's praying for them uh, that these that these men would have what it takes to stick with it. 
you yeah. don't have the right stuff. Right. Because you get to John chapter 6, and uh, it gets too difficult, and everybody leaves. Yeah, right. 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 Yeah. And so yeah. they're going to have to work through the opposite, you know, stay with yeah. it. Absolutely. The endurance. Right. Very good. Yes. I can imagine him praying that when he chose 12 out of the larger group, there wouldn't be envy, jealousy for those who weren't chosen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I imagine that as well. How did that happen if he called them by name and, you know, if, if he kind of walked through the group and put his hand on, on individuals and, okay, that, that was your means of being picked and, and you're, you're there, what? What about me? No. Um, and I, one of the things I like to say is Jesus was giving cover to pastors. What happens when you call people into your pastoral group as disciples? How many pastors do we have in the room? Okay. Uh, and you have your kitchen cabinet, right? And so the accusation can be well, pastors spend time with all the rich people in church so he gets money out of them, right? Or whatever. Uh, it might be, or this is the new power group. So no, this is just Jesus showing this has to be done if we're going to invest in people's lives. Okay, what? So let me move on. So what was the strategic import of what he was doing? Why was this necessary? Um, why not just completely com speak to the crowds? If you go on this text, you will see Jesus at a moment of great popularity. Crowds were gathering to hear him. Why not just? A mass movement. Uh, get them all swelled up. Uh, why the necessity of investing in a few? Relational. Relational? Yeah. How do you invest in six, five, six hundred thousand, twelve? You know, like the number grows. Right. Like, how does he invest and pour into? Relational. Yeah, relational. Yeah. yeah you, 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 in other words, you can't have a relationship with a thousand people. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think the relational depth that was necessary to shape them over time and deal with the issues that need to be dealt with that you, you can't do with them in the crowd. I like to say you have to get out of the crowd onto the journey of discipleship. Your discipleship doesn't start until you're willing to separate yourself from the crowd and get into a relationship. Yeah, I think for me, um, he modeled intimacy with Father. And so what was that like as they saw that? And then finally they asked, Lord, teach us to pray. Yeah. And so this dynamic uh, that they probably had never seen before. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a huge thing. So, yeah, certainly one aspect of his life that he was trying to pass on was that slipping away to be with the Father. Luke's gospel, particularly if you look at it, identifies that quite a number of times in terms of Jesus separating himself from the crowds, being alone, and... Uh, and then certainly the disciples saw the import of that. So in our outline here, you'll see I, I put you know internalization, the only way to internalize his manner, message, and mission into the lives of the disciples was personal association, to get walk alongside them in that, in that fashion. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, um, yes, this careful, painstaking education of his disciples secured the teacher's influence on this world should be permanent. That his kingdom should be founded on the deep of, rock of deep and indestructible convictions in the minds of a few, not on the shifting sands of superficial impressions in the minds of the many. Now, if that doesn't summarize it, I don't know what does in terms of that, you know, we just use that term superficial to describe the state of discipleship. Our churches 
And uh, so you have to go deep with a few. The other issue there is multiplication. I've got my eye on the clock here. So I want to move from um, this whole idea of Jesus invited a few to be with him to the foundation of the microgroups is personal invitation. Okay? And Dave, you're going to come up and uh, kind of model that for us a little bit here. Uh, I want to then look at the contrast between relationship and programs. But why is the microgroup different uh, from other ways of going about doing this? So Dave? As I pray for times of months, God began to stir in the hearts of several men who you were calling me to invite. Uh, after that time of prayer, and now that I'm in a microgroup every week, every year, and will be for the rest of my life, my three men I'm meeting with are praying for some of the men that I'm praying for. I'm praying for some of the men they're praying for. Again, we do it together, right? So I get to the point, Dean is on my list, all right? So I'm going to approach Dean. So Dean, I've been praying that God would lay in my heart a couple of men uh, to invite, to meet with me on a weekly basis for up two or a little more than a year to help me grow in my walk with Christ. Would you consider being one of those men? You bet. Okay. When I get that positive invitation, I'm going to say, Dean, um, would you pray about that for about a week or so? When I see you next, I'm going to put a book in your hands. I don't have the book with me at this point. So next time I see him at church or wherever, I'm going to have a copy of Transforming Discipleship. It's a Dean. Remember last week I told you I'd like, I'd like for you to have this book? All right? Not today. No. <laughs> you knew I was going to do it. <laughs> do you think you could read that in about five books? How many men have read a book in the last five years? <laughs> right? Teach and he'll say, oh, I think so, I'll try. I'll mark my calendar. Two weeks to the point, I'll call him and say, how's it going? Mm -hmm. To stay in touch with him. All right? Now, that's the invitation approach. There's other pieces of this we'll get on. As opposed to, next week, we're starting a small group. Sign up. Come be a part of our small group. What's the difference between the two approaches? Relationship. Intentionality. Intentionality. Transactional versus relational. Transactional. Not personal. Yeah. It's personal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, eyeball to eyeball. This is important. You're important. You bet. Very good, Dave. Thank yeah. you. So let me, as Dave just did, dramatize the difference between the programmatic approach to making disciples in our churches. So suppose you come up with this wonderful program of discipleship. It's 10 weeks long. And what's our usual process? We stand a staff member up in front of the congregation or maybe a key lay leader, and we make this mass invitation, a broadcast invitation. You all, after the service, go sign up you know, at the table where we're starting this new 10-week program. Who, go, who goes to that table? 
the five to ten percent that go to everything else, right? Okay, and uh, you don't make much advance uh, with it, and then you kind of run them syncretistically through ten weeks of a program. Maybe some relational content in there where you're processing some content, and then you hope well disciples pop out the other end of the program. Well, it doesn't happen, does it? So you start with a great fanfare and great hope that this is going to produce something, and then ten weeks later you realize well. Not much has taken place. There's not much transformation that has occurred. So let me do some of the contrast between the programmatic elements uh, that we do in the church and uh, the relational disciple making that is there. So since our PowerPoint's not working here, you're in the middle of page five in your outline. You see point D, a church's challenge, shift from programs to relationship. Uh, so three, four elements here I want to talk about. Shifting from information uh, to transformation uh, is really vital in this whole process. So, so often in classes, uh, we focus on the expert who has information to depart uh, to, the, to the class, right? So the way I visualize it, it's kind of a teacher with a full picture uh, wanting to pour his content into your empty picture and tra- transfer information. That's what we do in class settings. Uh, I was a pastor of a church in Chicago that was very theologically focused uh, around the Reformed tradition. And so understanding justification by faith alone was the very most important thing that they wanted people to get. So if you could cognitively get the concepts of by grace through faith alone, and uh, somebody could articulate that, we could check the box and they were good to go. As if that was all that was necessary. So it's just theological uh, content that's there. As opposed to relational, uh, Alyssa Richol, uh calls this purposeful proximity. I love that phrase. Uh, that's what discipling is all about. And she writes, how easy it is to substitute informing people for investing in people, to confuse organizing people with actually discipling people. Life is not the offspring of program or paper. Life is the offspring of life, <laughs> of relational connection. That was there. So... Um, so that, that contrast. Secondly, on your list from one-on-one to uh, one on behalf of many to mutual participation. So probably the paradigm that we talk about the expert uh, is preaching on Sunday morning. So um, a pastor puts 15, 20 hours of work into a sermon. People show up and uh, they listen uh, some people obviously could be moved and deeply moved by preaching. Uh, other people are there. But what is, I asked the question, what does it cost for somebody to show up and sit in the pew? How much investment is that? Who's done the investment? The preacher, right? And uh, by the time you get up uh, and to move after the worship service and engage in conversation or move out the door to head to your car, how much have we retained? Now, all of us probably could say we've had some turning points in our life because we heard the Spirit of God speak to us. I shared shared my conversion experience. Um, And so that certainly spoke to me. I don't want to be denigrating preaching in the sense of its power. But what's the purpose of preaching in the context of disciple-making? It is to bring people to conviction to take the next steps on the journey. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, you want to obviously have people trust the power of Scripture as you're preaching uh, and, and engage it in that way. But uh, so here's, here's the, my two controversial statements. 
If we could have made disciples by preaching at people, the job would have been done a long time ago, and we rely on preaching to do it. And here's the second one. Even the greatest preacher who ever lived did not rely on his preaching to make disciples who relied on relationships. Now, we're glad that Jesus gave us the content to study and apply uh, to our lives. But he invested in people in that relation. So what happens in a microgroup is everybody comes prepared, having studied the word on their own, and comes to the group. Uh, part of the covenant is you come prepared. Uh, you have to invest. Uh, we, we get out what we put in, right? And so... If you're coming, studying scripture, and then having to articulate your answers to questions uh, that is all all about biblical content and interpretation and application uh, to our lives, that's a little bit more investment, isn't it, (laughs) than uh, what uh, what generally happens. Uh, So when you think about the rationing out of commitment, most Bible studies, in my experience in churches, is require very little of people who come to them. Somebody's prepared to lead it, you may have to read a passage of scripture ahead of time, and maybe have to answer some questions ahead of time, but there's no basic requirement that that's the case. You come into a discipleship group, you make a covenant that you are going to come prepared, and uh, and then you hold each other accountable for having come prepared. Part of that scripture memory, you know, coming to be able to share uh, what you have memorized and articulated, and <laughs> we don't just articulate the scripture; we study that scripture and say. Where, where is it in the context? What is it meaning? What's the implication you know, for, our, for our life? So it's what we do together uh, that's important. The third element here on your list is we move from synchronization to customization. Anything worthy of the name of discipleship means we're going to be personal. We're going to know each other's journey. And if you do a 10-week discipleship program, it's pretty much synchronized. Okay? You have to, everybody has to be lesson one. Everybody has to be lesson two, lesson three marching through uh, that curriculum. But what we want in terms of disciple-making is to know each other, to know each other's challenges, to know each other's foibles, to know each other's areas of of, uh, gaps in knowledge and understanding. So you have a chance in a group of three or four to share that journey with each other. I always start with people sharing their faith journey. Tell us when you've been closest to God in your life. Tell us when you've been furthest away from God in your life. Let's hear about that by the front in terms of our, our journey together, those kinds of things. So customization. I like to tell a brief story here. One of, some of my favorite groups are, are intergenerational groups. So I love to have the spread of ages uh, in the group. So this group had a person in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And uh, so Billy was in his 30s, kind of immature for his age. Uh, he was one month away from getting married when we started our group. So a month later, he's married. Nine months later, he's got a child on the way. Hmm, good honey. Uh, and so he would say to us, uh, when I got in this group, I was saying, what am I doing in this group with all these old parts? And then he had got married, and then he had a child, and now he knew why he was in the group. But old parts, right, you guys are ahead of me. I'm, I don't know how to tackle all these things in terms of a new relationship. Uh, and then we had a young a man in his 40s. Rod came from an alcoholic family. His father was an uh, abusive father, beat his mother, and uh, he hated his father. And when we talk about God as father in this group, 
constantly. He would have trouble, obviously, getting to the place of trusting God as Father because of his father. And that became his discipleship issue. Could, could he be reparented with, with the real father in his life? Dave was in his 50s. Um, he was been in insurance business all of his life. Uh, had built up a great practice, but he was from that, uh, that, that uh, moving from uh, success to significant stage of his life, the halftime stage. Is this all I want to do all my life, is sell insurance? And he had this inner desire to be engaged in ministry. And he had this opportunity to join an organization called C12. Maybe some of you are aware of that. It's an organization that works with Christian CEOs and helps them lead their companies as a Christian leader. And he would have to give up his, his, his income as in insurance and then go over to this for-profit business and start something from scratch. And he was giving birth to that idea the whole time we were there. And it was just such a joy to walk alongside him to see that come to fruition, which we would never have seen if uh, he had not been in that group with us and we could pray him through all the challenges that met him through the transition in his life. I was the older one in that group, as you might have guessed. And uh, so um, what came up for me in my challenge at that stage again was I was diagnosed with prostate cancer and a very virile form of it. And uh, the prognosis initially was not terribly exciting. Uh, so uh, to have this group in my life to pray me through it, you can see I'm here today, so apparently something worked well uh, during that time. At, uh, so just to have that carry through you know, with those, I think so. And then the last element on your list there is moving from kind of program accountability uh, to life change accountability. So it's not just about filling stuff in the workbook. Uh, it's identifying those areas of our life that we need God's transformational change. And so uh, for all of those reasons, uh, we are at the, but to go back to the issue of they start in personal relationship. Okay, let's uh, give us a little grace here for a few minutes in terms of time. So um, can you, uh, any, any questions that you have or comments at this point? Wait, 10, 15, I think, is our gathering back in the auditorium. So, yeah. so Jesus had a group of 12. You prefer a group of three or four. What's the contrast there for the speech? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Jesus had a micro group. You know that. <laughs> Peter, James, and John. Uh, so he obviously signaled them out for a number of very key occasions. Uh, raising a Jairus' daughter, Mount of Transfiguration, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, they are signaled out. And apparently he gave himself to that micro group a little bit more. Question. What's that? So how do we move from that model of a group of 12 to a group of three or four? It was the question. So that's that's my respo response to that. So, and yeah, I think apparently he invested in them more than others, and you see the results of their life. Peter, James, and John show up pretty prominently in the New Testament more than the others, right? So, okay, other comments? Yes. Yeah. So, can I still struggle? I I said a lot of one on one. Okay. As you go along and develop that kind of trust relationship and learn to be self-revealing, not every group is 
uh, you know, will the deep issues of pornography and things like that show up in, a, in my group? What's the, what's the question? And there is an uneven ability, I will say, over time um, to become raw and open and honest uh, with each other. Some groups can get there fairly quickly. Uh, the first group I had in, in my in church in Chicago, we were like, okay, let's be Bush, Dancity and, Bush, Bush Cassidy and Sundance Kid, and then let's hold hands and jump off the cliff together. And uh, let's get, get real with each other in terms of our issues. I've had others times when people, men have just had a hard time going to those tender, soft, vulnerable spaces in, in their life, just almost constitutionally unable uh, to get there. But most often, and I can tell you many, many uh, deep issues that we have wrestled with uh, when we get to the confessional phase. Actually, next session, we're looking at the transformational elements in a microgroup and how do you get to that deep level of con mutual confession uh, to each other. And uh, yes, you can get there. And it can be very transformative and when you when you do that. And pornography. Like I, I, I got a guy right now who's a nurse. He works this weird shift. Oh, right? yeah. For him to meet with two or three other guys, it's so hard. Everybody's so busy. Yeah. To try to get four people together in the same place an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, we've run into those those challenges as, as well in terms of people's scheduling, and sometimes it's uh, it's easier with three or four than it is with a much larger group than that. Obviously, so that's. I, I, most of my groups, I've had you know, something traveling going up with uh, this person. Okay, can we move from Thursday to Tuesday? You know, usually you can find another niche. Somebody who has a variable schedule like that, who works a night shift one week and a day shift another week, and you know, um, that's really tough. You know, for the, for that individual, I'm not sure how how to quite solve that problem for that particular person. You know. Did you find the benefit overall of a, of a group is better? In my, in my experience, yes. I, I can't universalize that for, for everybody, but uh, as one who practiced the one-on-one -on -one for years, and, uh, and this is far more reproducible uh, in terms of people being able to, and we'll get into that as well, in terms of people being able to do what you do in that group and say, since you're practicing the leadership, we share it around the circle and it's not one person leading through the whole time. It's you very quickly. Um, everybody participates in leadership, and then they learn to do it themselves. And by the time you get to the end, they led the group multiple, multiple times. And it's like, okay, this is not rocket science. I, I can do this. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I hope that y'all enjoyed that episode from GDI. Up next, we've got more track sessions from Greg Ogden and Global Discipleship Initiative. So I look forward to catching y'all on the next episode. Y'all have a blessed day. Mm -hmm.